Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel, and it's my privilege to continue leading us through our sermon series, looking at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where we find seven ancient letters written to the early church in the first century, and uh, we're considering what do Jesus' words to those churches mean to us today. So far, we've looked at two of the churches. We've looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus and the letter to the church in Smyrna. But today, we're going to be looking at a third letter to the church in Pergamum. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17. I'm going to read it here because it's a letter. We might as well grab it from a mailbox. But we're going to take seriously, as much as we joke with this little illustration, about what Jesus might have to say. This is what he said to John, and John recorded it down. He said, to the angel of the church, church in Pergamum, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we receive uh, the words of your Son uh, through the anointing of your Spirit through John and as the Bible has been passed down through the ages, Lord, we just want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you just be clear with us today exactly what it is, perhaps, that is within us that is in this place of compromise like we saw in the early church. But Lord, as we consider that, would we also be reminded of the greatness of who you are, of your immense sacrifice, Jesus, that you had made. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you forgive us, that you offer us this this entrance into a better place with you for eternity. And so Lord, as we consider that day, as we consider this letter that was once written long ago, Lord, we, we just ask you to speak clearly to us today about how we move forward in this in-between kind of space. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the days this letter was distributed to the churches, particularly first the church of Pergamum, uh, we know that Pergamum stood as a great city. And it was a city that was known for really two major things. The first was it was known as a city of great education and great culture. 
It had a library containing over 200,000 parchment scrolls. Now, that's a lot of books, even by today's standard, but in a world where very few could read and write, to have a library of mass like this in your city would have been huge. This would have really set you as sort of the epicenter of education in the day. Scholars from all over the world would have come to this place to learn history, philosophy, different things about different faiths. This was really a, a central hub. And because of that, we know that it's sort of the second big thing it was known for in terms of culture was that it was the city of the proconsul. Now, the proconsul is sort of the, what you would picture as the governor of a region. He's sort of like the mini-king representative. He was there to live and act and breathe as if Caesar himself was in that city. And so from this place, he actually would have controlled the whole region that was around. We, we know, of course, from reading like the, the letter to the church in Ephesus and Smyrna that the proconsul would have gone to these different cities as we interacted with some of the martyrs of faith. We re reminisced, if you remember when I talked about Polycarp the other week, I talked about how the magistrate straight was there. That was this proconsul who would have come in to deal with this bishop that they thought was a problem. But here he lived within Pergamum. And so we have this educated sort of political center that was also a major religious city. Pergamum was the leading place of idol worship in the province of Asia, perhaps in the entire world. People would come all over to come to one particular temple especially, which was the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. But in addition to him, there was also temples to all sorts of other gods, to Zeus and Dionysus and Athena. But not only did they worship these Roman and Greek deities, they also worshipped Caesar himself. And this city was known for its worship of Caesar. In fact, it didn't just have one temple. They eventually built three of the largest temples in the known world at the time, all dedicated to worshiping their emperor. We think that's crazy. But in their day, that was the expectation. And that was something that was revered as what made this city great. Now, I share this all with you, not to give you history lesson, though the history is very interesting. Why I give this to you is to give you sort of a sense of why Jesus might have described himself at the beginning of this letter in a certain way. As I've mentioned, as we've been looking at these letters, in the beginning of each one, Jesus self-declares something uh, about his nature, about who he is in relationship with the city he writes to. And in this case, what we see is that he describes himself this way. He said, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And so there's this interesting description that gives us this picture as Jesus as a warrior. Jesus with this mighty weapon. And this would have been particularly interesting to the people of the city of Pergamum for two reasons. First, because the sword was actually the symbol of the city. 
So if you know how we have our Abbotsford flag and in the middle there's the, the strawberry flower that, that, that takes place. Well, if you were to have this flag of the city of Pergamum, you would have a giant sword drawn across the flag. And the reason this sword was given is because this particular city was granted the right of the sword. And what did that mean? Well, it meant that the people of the city were allowed to hold their own trials that could lead towards capital punishment. Now, that was very unique because, you see, the Romans wanted to control everything. And for them to come and occupy a place and then trust the people enough to do it on their own, to really stand up for what they believe as an empire was incredibly rare. And so they became known as the city with the right of the sword. Jesus is clearly speaking directly against this. We also know, of course, that the sword is a depictor of war in this day. So what Jesus is doing is he's enticing his followers to see him as the one who comes with the ultimate weapon with the ultimate authority. We see that Jesus is coming at war with what's going on in this city. So notice what Jesus has to say following this. In verse 13, 14, and 15, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to get death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So it's sort of that fighting language. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And if we remember back to last week, the Nicolaitans are these people who Jesus has already said, I hate the practices that they live by. And so what we see is that there's this spiritual war taking place in the city of Pergamum. And the church is sort of in the middle of it. As we read this text, we get this picture that there's a war waging on outside of the church, coming in and pressing against them, but there's also something taking place right there in their midst. Ultimately, this isn't a war of swords that are coming at them physically, though as we read, some people were martyred because of their faith. What we really see, though, is this is a war of ideology, of philosophy, of the way people were living. And so what happened is that the church found itself steeped in this unique city that had a battle waging within full of different ideas that were trying to penetrate and divide the church away from the way of Jesus. Notice what Jesus has to say about the outside of this world, what's happening outside of the church in this place. He says, I know where you live it's where Satan has his throne. I mean, those are pretty poignant words about what is happening in this city. 
But in the context of this city, it makes perfect sense if we understand history. I've got a picture here uh, to show you. And this is a picture uh, where down at the bottom you have uh, the city of modern-day Pergamon. It's changed in how they pronounce it, or Pergamos is how some others would pronounce it. And then what you see is above the city, and this was always there, was this giant hill. And across the top of that hill, you see these different little building structures and stones that are uh, erected in sort of a column-like way. And what these were is they were actually altars to the different gods of the city. And so we have one altar, uh, which was actually a larger building that doesn't stand in the same way today, but it was a temple to the god Asclepius. Now, the god Asclepius was one who was really revered in his day. People came to this god as the god of healing. Now, interestingly, what would happen is that what people would come into the city, they would come from healing, and they literally would travel from uh, the region of North Africa in. They would come over from the rest of the province of Asia. They would come in from modern-day Europe to this place to lay in the temple at night And what was in the temple was just thousands of snakes. And they believed that Asclepius would reveal himself as a serpent. And amongst these snakes, as they slithered and crawled, if one touched you, it was seen as if the God himself was blessing you with healing. And so people would gather, they'd make sacrifices, they'd come to him regularly. There was another uh, great temple, which we see there, sort of more center on. This is uh, the, the uh, altar to Zeus, the god of the gods. This was where they would see him, and they would say, this is the place where God is. But not referring to the god you and I think about. Now, on top of this, with the biblical imagery that we see of serpents depicting Satan, we also had this place called the Pergamum Altar. Now, this is a reconstruction of it in uh, a museum in Berlin. But what you can see is uh, is that this is set up as an altar in a very unique way. Look at how there's a little bit of a back and then two things that sprawl out that give us kind of a sense of a seat. There was this idea that this is where the gods would sit. And all along, you can see those sort of reliefs carved into the stone were all these different depictions of the gods and the different idols they worshipped and the battles that would take place in their world. And so when Jesus is saying, this place where you live has a throne to Satan, he's not just using imagery. This isn't just metaphorical that Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you are genuinely steeped in the one who is against me. The culture of the city in which you live is demonic. So great job for standing against it. That's what he goes on to say. He says, I know where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. 
You didn't renounce faith in me, even though someone was martyred amongst you. Even though there's people being put to death in this city in the name of my enemy. Now, if we just stop there, this would be a great letter for the church in Pergamum to receive. I mean, they'd be able to, to stand proud and be like, yeah, you know what? We've done a really good job resisting ourselves against blatant evil. But the letter doesn't end that way. It continues on in verse 14 and 15, where we get this description about how while the church is intolerant to the worldviews and ideologies outside of itself, there begins to be a bit of philosophy creep, of theology drift, of ideological change taking place within the church. You see, the church sometimes becomes so focused on what's happening outside of itself that we don't recognize the compromise that's happening inside. Basically, we can be so obsessed with fighting against what's totally evil that we, start, that we stop thinking critically inside of this place. And so what do we see? We saw that there were these false teachings that begin to creep in to the church in this city. First off, we have this reference to Balaam. This is, of course, a reference to a story of history that we know that comes out of the book of Numbers, where the people of Israel were led astray by a false prophet who was trying to twist the people of Israel's attention away from the things of God for personal benefit. We also have this reference again to the Nicolaitans. And while we don't know exactly, because there's not a lot written about them in history, what they believe, we get this sense that there's something going on in which they are trying to deceive people, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally with the best of intentions, away from what they should believe. And so what happens? The people of the church begin to sort of compromise on some of their beliefs. They begin to give in to some false teachings. And they begin to participate in two particularly devastating spiritual practices which are eating meat sacrificed to idols and having sex outside of marriage regularly. Now, if you know anything about ancient history, you would know that this isn't something new that just this church took place in. In fact, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that these are rampant problems that took place and really challenged the early church. For starters, we have just this practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so what would happen in a city like Pergamum is that they would have all these thousands of altars uh, that would have different idols all over the place. And what you would do as a person who worshipped these deities is you would go on a somewhat semi-regular basis when it was time to either ask for these different gods' blessings or try to make yourself right for them. And what you would do is you'd go to the market, you'd get an animal, or if you're a farmer, you'd take an animal that you already had and the best one that you could, and you would take it before the idol or the altar, and you would have the 
temple priest or priestess sacrifice this animal. And then what would happen is the priest or priestess in response would take a piece of that meat and they'd give it back to you. And they'd say, go have a feast in the name of whatever God or goddess was represented, whatever idol they were worshiping at. And so the people would then take this piece of meat, maybe a big leg of lamb, maybe a huge hind quarter of a calf, something like that, and they would come on back to their home and they'd throw a huge party. They'd invite all their friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and they'd all gather to that place and begin to take part in this meal together. The question then for Christians was, can we participate? And, you know, maybe it's not all that bad. I mean, these idols, they're really not actually gods themselves. And even if there's gods behind this, we believe in the big God who's more powerful than all this. And so maybe it's not that big of a deal. I mean, they're just stone. They're just wood. There's no power over our God there. We're saved people. And so, like, it wouldn't be that big of a deal to participate. I mean, this is a great opportunity for networking, right? This is a a great opportunity for me to climb the social status, right? It's not that big of a deal. This was the sort of thing that began to infiltrate What's the big deal about participating in something that really doesn't have power in and of itself? These are the ways that things begin to creep into the church. Things begin to be articulated in a way that seems to make sense with what we've been taught in our theology. You know, the the best cults even today in ter- best being in terms of their growth rate and their ability to sort of deceive Christians being that what they do is they kind of articulate a worldview using things that seem to make sense to us. They seem to align with what scripture has to say. And so we then get into this place where we're like, well, I can't really disagree with that, right? Like, I'm not going to disagree with someone who's saying that God is bigger than all these Roman deities. That's right, right? I'm not going to disagree that my salvation is, is sealed because of what Jesus has done for me and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe this is something that I can partake in. You feel how there can be just this little bit of a creep that comes in. And this coming from people of faith. Jewish people who knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards who could articulate these things, but who had ultimately these other motivations. But not only was there this sacrifice uh, meat, was there this festival that people would come eat at whenever this would happen, but there would be all this sexual immorality. And again, as understanding this first century culture, we have to understand that there were way bigger liberties taking place back in that day than are taking place today. I mean, having sex outside of marriage was like a regular part of living 
in a place like Pergamum. If you were not a Christian person and you were to go to any one of these temples, uh, you would often see that they would have prostitutes and part of worship would be having sex with the prostitutes in order to worship God. It was very regular for people to have sex as part of their parties when they would have these feasts or even if you were just having someone over for dinner. And this all stemmed from the fact that there was this philosophy in the day that distinguished between body and soul. You see, they believed that we, were, we are all souls that have bodies. And so what you did as a soul, as who you really were, was you give in to your body's desire because it would mean it would keep on working for you. Really, what you're doing is you're trying to keep charged up this little robotic bioskeleton that you have to keep moving on as you live as a soul. This is self-care, so to speak, in their day. But of course, we know, as uh, our creator teaches us in his scriptures that we have to read, that this is a wildly misunderstood worldview. God made us as whole beings, Heart, mind, soul, and body all integrated. We understand that because we have this different view of our identity and what it means to be human, there's a different view that needs to take place in how we understand human sexuality. Wrongfully, what people still today, but especially back then, thought was, wow, apparently Christians are against sex. They're, they're crazy, they just don't listen, they ignore what, what this is really all for. Whereas Christians, we say, no, that's actually completely wrong. We believe that God created us to be sexual beings, it's just that he designed us for one union because our sexuality was meant to unite people, mind, body, and soul, and that was to represent something else. It was meant to represent Christ and his church. And so there was this question, though, that took place because of this creeping in philosophy. Well, I hear that God teaches us that he's created us in a certain way, but it seems to make sense that, like, I do sometimes feel like I'm just, like, living in a body and the two parts of me aren't really connected. Like, I can really just live in my head and it feels like my body is just an add-on. So maybe it's not really that big of a deal, right? Like maybe, like look at how it's working for everybody else. That looks pretty fun. Maybe I could go take play, part in what's happening in that place. Great. There's a war of ideologies that's taking place. There's a war of worldviews that the church began to sort of grow numb to. And this took the people of God away from what he would have for them. And that problem still exists today. You know, it's really easy to read passages like this, and if we understand a bit of the history, to be like, man, what is wrong with them? Like, it's so obvious that we shouldn't participate in this other worship that takes place. It, it makes sense that, that we should just be united 
man and woman in the bond of marriage for our sexuality to, to take place, to represent something bigger than this? What is wrong with them? But while we do that, we almost do the same thing that took place in Pergamum. We look at the things that we see are blatantly evil, and we pay attention and stick our arms out to sort of push it out, while we ignore the compromise that creeps in. What might this look like today? Well, thinking of sort of the two ways of, of viewing the ideology, one related to sort of the thinking about uh, integrating with our city and taking worldviews, and one to think about sort of the sexual nature, let me break it down into two sort of different ways. Well, the first one that happens all the time in our church culture is we begin to look for things that maybe help us feel like we're moving forward in life. Sometimes we get to this place where we just feel like we're on a treadmill instead of being out hiking on a mountain. When we're out hiking on a mountain, you know, we get this sense of, you know, I'm going someplace. I'm going to arrive somewhere. But sometimes life just doesn't feel that way, does it? Sometimes it feels more like this monotonous trudge on the treadmill. And as we're going along the treadmill, we begin to look for things that could sort of take us to another place, mentally, emotionally, relationally. And so we begin to look for things that other people teach. And sometimes the stuff that they have to teach is not all that bad. Sometimes it's got some good stuff mixed in with some other stuff that's just from other world views. And as we begin to pick at it, if we're not careful in discerning, we begin to just merge it with our Christian worldview. I mean, I know loads, loads and loads and loads of followers of Jesus who take Tony Robin and Jordan Peterson at the same level that they take the teachings of Jesus. I mean, we go and we look and we say, hey, they had some interesting things to say. And some of those things feel like they have values that are sort of kind of tied to our Christian faith. And so maybe I'm just going to adopt what they have to say because that feels like it's helping me propel forward in life. And I'm just going to begin to let this steep in my life. It's the same way that a decade or two ago, People begin to look at Oprah or Eckhart Tolle, and we began to see that there were sort of these spiritualish teachings, and we began to let them steep. The problem is that oftentimes, as we begin to do that, there begins to start a little creep. Well, all that's working for me, and so I'm just going to take this next thing they have to say. Now, it's not to say everything they have to say is a bad thing, but are we doing our due diligence to test those things against what Scripture has to say? Are we being intentional to make sure that just because something sounds Christian, it actually is Christian? It actually lines up with the way and teaching of Jesus. If we're not being intentional in that way, it's very easy for this sort of thing that sounds good to begin to cause us to drift away. 
And like C.S. Lewis has to say in his, uh, in his book called The Screwtape Letters, he says this, he says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. It's not to say we lose our salvation, but it is to say that the quickest way for us to begin to drift away from the path that God wants us to is to slowly and gradually and gently walk away all by ourselves because we've given in to the compromise that we've allowed to creep in. It's sort of like eating the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. In the same sort of way, we, we have allowed ourselves, though not to the same extreme, to become very liberal sexually. And oftentimes, it's sort of twisted somehow in this sort of Christian way. I hear a lot of people, men and women, who both would have to say, well, you know what, I am going to just look at this thing on the internet, or I'm just going to take care of myself physically, because, you know what, that's actually going to keep me from more temptation. I'm not going to give in and sleep with my girlfriend, or maybe that will help me wait until marriage. Well, what's the reality of that? The reality is that that started as a one-time thing, then became a once-a-month thing, then became a once-a-week thing, then became once a day. These are the types of things that we allow to creep in. We think, wow, maybe this is something that, 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 that's, that's okay. I'm, I'm kind of trying to view it in this sort of Christian way. But really, we've actually totally lost the way of what Christ would have to say. We do this in even more subtle ways within the church. One of the things I see today is people walking away from the call of Jesus on every single believer. We believe that Jesus has called every single person to a mandate to build his church and expand his kingdom in the world. But what I see is a lot of Christians who do that for a while, and then they say, you know what, I'm going to have a rest day. And you know what, sometimes we do need to rest our minds and our bodies. Sometimes there's health to take a break. And so there is some truth in that. But the problem can be when that mindset of getting some health and restoration turns into, well, you know what? Maybe it's a really good thing for me to just let others step up to serve. Maybe my time's come and I'm, I'm done. Maybe, maybe as, as my time's done, it's actually my turn to receive. Maybe I'm blessing other people by allowing them to serve me. These are the types of things that take place in the church. And it can come in all sorts of ways and shapes. It can look different with different sort of philosophy in behind it. And the problem isn't every single piece of it. There is little pieces of truth maybe here and there in some of these things. There's maybe some things that don't stand against our teachings. But yet, if we're not careful, if 
we're not diligent in ensuring we're not compromising on the things and ways of Jesus, we begin to drift away. And I think that brings us right back to that beginning of why Jesus had to say he's the one with the sword. He's saying, listen, my friends, it's not that you're just compromising on little things. We're in the middle of a war of ideologies, of philosophies, of theologies. But it's not just about those things. It's about the very people next to you, your friends and your family. And so he calls the church to come back. In verse 16, because of this compromise that's taking place, he says, repent therefore. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, I will fight over what it means to be human. I will fight you over what it looks like to follow in my ways. And Jesus has already shown that he's going to go to great extents. I mean, Jesus was already willing to go to the cross and die in our place. And then he was already willing to go to a place where he would say, I've already taken the punishment. I've already taken the sword. Come to me. Come to me for forgiveness. Come to me for reconciliation. Come to me for that restoration. Come for me to me for that wholeness. Come to me for that community that you seek. I've already provided a better way. To repent means to think again, to turn around, to go in the right way. And Jesus is saying, I want you, my people, to think again each and every day. I want you to think again about the things that you're hearing. And yes, some of them are going to be great. Some of those things are things you're going to incorporate into your life. Some of those things are going to be a huge blessing. But there's going to be others that stand in your way. So don't compromise. Don't adopt them just because they they help you feel like you're getting somewhere because what I'm telling you is they're actually taking you in a totally different direction than where you want to head. This is why the Apostle Paul reminded us, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? As Paul said, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This will help us in this day. Then there's a promise if we're willing to do that. As we choose not to be conformed by the patterns of this world, as we choose to come back to Jesus time and time again, as we compromise, as we all will, as I do all the time, we come to this place where Jesus says, if you are willing to follow me, if you're willing to trust in my name, if you're willing to come back from that compromise, then this is what he has to say. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who does those things, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. God promises manna. Again in this letter, right, he called us back in one hand to the story of Balaam and Balak and the compromise. He also, in a different way, calls us back to the story that reminds us of when Israel was on their journey. And they felt like they were never getting any closer to the promised land. 
And so for 40 years, they were in the wandering, in the wilderness, and they said, God, we need you to provide. And by God's grace, he provided them manna. He provided them what they needed to get through each and every single day, exactly what they needed, until they arrived at the promised land where he had all sorts of things in store for them. God today is promising us that even though sometimes we feel like we're wandering, even though sometimes we feel like we're just on a treadmill and it would be easier to reach out and to grab onto something else that will take us in another way, he is going to provide for us. He's going to give us exactly what we need if we follow him. And while we might not see it, it's the hidden manna. It's going to arrive right on time and carry us through every single thing. And then with it, he gives us this promise of a white stone. Now, this, this promise of a white stone is sort of meaningless in our day and age, but what it could have meant in the, ancient, in the ancient world was a whole bunch of different things. In ancient Asia, what we saw is there were these stones that, took place, that were used in court cases. And how you knew if you got a, a guilty verdict or an innocent one was they would give you a black stone if you were guilty or a white stone if you were innocent. Also, in their culture, in their day, giving a white stone was a symbol of friendship and an invitation to hospitality. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in this case. In, G in the day of Pergamum, in this case, there was something that people would give one another, which was called a tessera hospitalis. It's up on the screen. There's a little piece of white stone, and across it was engraved the name of a friend. And what would happen is as you would gather with somebody and you made a real special relationship, what you would do is you would give them this stone. And upon it was their name, how you identified them, what you appreciated about them. You'd give them maybe sort of a pet name, if you will. And this stone would provide the person a reminder that they had that person's friendship through anything. It was a token of loyalty. It was an appreciation of who they were, but it was also a meal ticket. What would happen, you see, in these days, like this was such a culture of having all these different feasts and, and, and inviting people into your home and giving uh, your hospitality to somebody was to show that you cared for them as family, that you wanted them in, in the most important parts of their lives. And so what you'd do is you'd say, I'm giving you this stone with your name and all you ever have to do is show up at my door and show my servant that stone, and you'll be let into any party. It doesn't matter if the banquet is full, if you roll in from out of the city and you show that, we will make sure there is a special place for you. We will make sure you get the best food, the best wine, and you will enjoy the best of my hospitality. In the same way Jesus says, I have written you a new name. I have given you new life for eternity. And while you are maybe distant from that place today, this is your ticket to an eternal banquet, to an eternal feast, towards the best of all things that will ever come to all people, and your name is written. 
here. You can trust me. You have my gift. You have my promise. I pledge friendship forever. And so why do we not give up and compromise? Because the things this world has to offer might seem great in the moment, but it's going to lead us in a totally wrong way. But instead, if we hold true to the teachings of Jesus, if we really aspire to live our life with him, then we will one day receive something far better than anything and everything we could have received in our day. And so today we're going to celebrate that by taking communion. We're going to take communion together to remember that Jesus' death and resurrection is a victory. And that there's a promise that comes with it that's an eternal promise of friendship, of love, of relationship. And it's a reminder that when we compromise, there is a cost. And that cost was the death of Jesus on a cross. But as we go there, before we do, I want us to consider this warning that the Apostle Paul gave. In 1 Corinthians, when he told the church in Corinth how they were to receive this meal, he gave a warning. He said, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so let's just take a moment, reflect upon our own lives. Where am I compromising? Where am I not trusting in the way of Jesus? And then let's offer those things to him. To repent, let's turn our minds back towards him. And then we'll receive the promise of forgiveness, the goodness of his grace that will cover all those things. Lord, I recognize in myself that there is a temptation to compromise in different ways. But there's places where if I'm not careful, I just think that I can provide for myself better than you can. That I can trust in certain things to, to take me to places where I'll never be going. And Lord, I know those things are just flying in your face, Lord. They're just a total disregard and disrespect of who you are, of the invitation that you give for eternal life, the invitation that you give for a life upon this earth of walking alongside someone who cares. Holy Spirit, that you are with us, empowering us, encouraging us, and giving to us each and every day. So Lord, I ask for that forgiveness for me. Lord, on behalf of our church, Lord, I ask just for your forgiveness for the places we've compromised, whether individually or corporately. Lord, in ways that we recognize and in ways we don't, we, we recognize that we have just such a limited view, but we're thankful that you see everything. Lord, we recognize that there's places maybe that 
They'll look nice and shiny, but deep down inside, it's decrepit, it's rotten. And Lord, I pray that you would expose those things to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross. So that even though we do wrong time and time again, we know that we can receive your forgiveness. We know that we have your love. We know that we have your friendship. We know that we are to inherit your kingdom fully one day. And so we thank you for that. So Lord, as we come to the table, as we take the bread and cup, I pray that we would just feel the weightiness of your sacrifice. Lord, forgive us but help us to see the great thing that we have to receive. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name.